So this guy goes to visit the great Swami to ask the meaning of life. And he travels by air and by boat and by donkey, and he finally he gets to the top of the mountain where the great Swami resides in isolation, comes face to face with the great Swami, he says, great Swami, what is the meaning of life? The great Swami says, my son, life is like a fountain. He says, yes, yes, of course, of course, life is like a fountain. Life is like a fountain. Thinks for a second, he says, great Swami, how, how, how is life like a fountain? Great Swami says, no, so maybe it's not like a fountain. <laughs> okay, all right, I'm pretty consistent here with my jokes. Consistent reaction to these jokes. Okay. The meaning of life. Well, it's funny you're in Yiddish, yeah. It's always the cop-out excuse. Well, in Yiddish, it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, so uh, the meaning of life. How important is it to seek the meaning of life? It's interesting because actually it's a subject of dispute between two great Jewish psychologists of the previous century. You have uh, <clears throat> Viktor Frankl, of course, who was a Holocaust survivor. And many, many people think that he wrote logotherapy as a response to his Auschwitz experience. It's actually quite the opposite. He came up with it as a theory. And then unfortunately, he had multiple uh, opportunities to see it verified. His theory was that a person needed to have meaning. He needed to have a reason to live and that it was actually essential to survival. And then in the camps he actually saw this, that people who lost the will to live um, could not go on. At the same time, interestingly, in the 1940s, you have another Jewish psychologist Imagine that, a Jewish psychologist. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's another one of those anti-Semitic tropes, the overrepresentation of the Jews in certain fields. By the way, I, I want to say for full transparency, you know where Jews, what profession Jews are really overrepresented? Rabbis. It's like dominated by Jews. At any rate, um, yeah. So, uh, what were we talking about? Jewish uh, media? Uh, yeah. Bankers? Yeah. What? Psychologist. Jewish psychologists. Okay. So, there was another Jewish psychologist at the exact same time as Frankel, who lived in Austria. There was a, a Jewish psychologist by the name of Maslow, Abraham Maslow. He lived in California. And he had the... Uh, the, the famous hierarchy of needs, which is a representation, it's a sort of a diagram of a pyramid. And the base of the pyramid, the widest level, the foundation of the pyramid, those are what he considers to be the most important needs. That's why he calls it a hierarchy. And then uh, you go increasingly to the top and you have thinner or narrower uh, levels, which he considers to be things that are 
after you meet the lower need, then you become interested in meeting the higher need. So for instance, like the lowest level are physiological needs. So a person who can't breathe, let's say, God forbid, he can't breathe, um, and you ask him, where do you want to go for lunch today? He's not that interested in eating because first he needs to breathe. But after you can breathe, then you're interested in making sure that you can eat. And in turn, a person who doesn't know where he's going to get food, where his next meal is coming from, is not thinking about where he's going to find shelter for the night. But once a person has food, then he'll start to think, oh, where is a dry, safe place for me to, to sleep? Um, and then it graduates from physio physiological needs um, to things like, uh, like uh, society, companionship, uh, living in a community. So a person, for, for instance, who's, who's trying to keep their body alive, they're not really worried about friendship and that kind of stuff. But once you do have those needs met, then you look for higher level needs. And then the highest thing, uh, the, the spitz, to use a Yiddish word, the little tippy top of the pyramid, in Maslow's hierarchy is self-actualization, which is meaning finding uh, uh, like a coherent philosophy or a narrative that explains what life's all about, that kind of thing. So it's interesting. Um, these two approaches are really inversions of one another. Frankel is saying that what Maslow considers the last thing you need, <laughs> Frankel says, is the most essential. And that vice versa, even if somebody has their most basic survival, what we can classically consider survival needs met, but they don't have what Maslow considers the most, uh, call it maybe the luxury, the most luxurious of needs, then, then according to Frankel's worldview, a person would actually die. They would not even be able to survive. So, um, what does it have to do with this week's Torah portion? So, Yitzchak, Isaac, marries Rivka, Rebecca, and it says here that Rivka, Rebecca, is brought to Yitzchak, Isaac's tent. Yitzchak brought her to the tent of Sarah, his mother. And he took Rivka, and she became his wife. And he loved her. And Yitzchak was comforted, comforted after his mother. What is this phrase, the tent of Sada, his mother? Rashi reads it like this. He brought her to the tent. And she became Sada, his mother. Now we get another Jewish psychologist very interested. <laughs> Freud would have a field day with that. Oedipus, Shmedipus, as long as he loves his mother, right? Okay. Claymar, that is to say, Naiseis Dugmas Sada she became the image, a replica of Sada, 
his mother. What does it mean that she became, that Rivka became like Sada, Rebecca became like Sarah? She calls Mancha Sada Kayemis Haya. Ner Dolok Me'er Shabbos, Le'er Shabbos, that as long as Sarah was alive, her tent had a candle that would stay lit from one Ed of Shabbos, one Friday afternoon until the next. Uvracha Metzuya Be'isa, and there was a blessing in the dough, meaning that the, no matter how many guests they had, and Sarah's husband Abraham was always having guests, no matter how many guests they had, the Dough was always sufficient to satiate everyone, so there was a blessing in the dough. And there was a cloud over the tent. When she died, meaning Sarah, those things stopped, all three of those things stopped. But when Rivka, Rebecca, came, when she married Isaac, they returned, they were reinstated. So there were three things that took place as long as Sada was alive. So remember what they were. There was candles that stayed lit all Shabbos, or all week, from Shabbos to Shabbos. There was a blessing in the dough, and there was a cloud over the tent. Okay. When she passed away, those things left. When Rivka came and, and, and married Yitzchak, those things returned. Okay. And the source Rashi gets this from is a madrash from Bereshis Rabbah. So, this is like the archetypical Jewish home. This is our matriarch, Sarah, as well as our matriarch, uh, Rebecca. And whatever they have in their home, it's not just uh, peculiar, peculiar to them, it's really sort of a model for all of us. And this idea of these three miracles that were the signature of these two matriarchs is, is a teaching to us. I mean, I'm sure there were many miracles. We know there were angels coming and going in their home and all types of supernatural stuff. Why are these three things singled out? Like, there were there weren't other unusual things to speak of. And the explanation is these three, three, these three things are three categories. There are many miraculous things and special things that happened, but these three things are three categories. And they're sort of like the mainstays of a Jewish home. And that's why we see them by the original Jewish home. You have the Shabbos candles. The Shabbos candles represent warmth and light. Um, light is intangible. So it's not a material thing, it's a it's an abstraction. You think about light, you have a room that's dark and you can't see what's in the room and then you turn on the lights and you say, ah, there's a beautiful banquet here. Well, the banquet was there before the lights were turned on, so turning on the lights doesn't actually put anything new in the room, but it allows you to see it, to appreciate it. So it's intangible, but uh, it enhances our experience of all the tangible things. That, that's light. 
Then there was the, the blessing and the dough. That's, I mean, every Jewish mother knows that you got to have what to feed your guests and you can't let people leave your house without eating more than they planned on eating and make sure to serve them fruit. You have to have fruit. You can't leave without a little fruit, at least some fruit. And uh, then you have the cloud on the tent. That's shelter. And that's probably the most basic thing. To have a, a home, you have to have a house. Doesn't mean you have to be a homeowner, <laughs> whether you, you, you own or you, or you rent. The point is that you need a physical space. You need a physical space where this Jewish home is taking place. So that's the, that's the uh, cloud over the tent. So basically you have three categories. You have the warmth, the intangible light. You have <clears throat> the food and all the other uh, material needs that people need to keep their bodies going. And then you have the, the cloud over the tent, meaning the shelter, the actual physical environment where to put everything. And those are three categories. So if I were to ask you, like Sesame Street style, which, remember that which of these kids is doing his own thing, right? So of these three categories, which of these three is different from the other two? What might you say? Candles. Because it's not physical. Okay. So you have the light, which is intangible, and then you have the food and the shelter, which are tangible, physical. And the question becomes what is the role of this? sort of odd man out, this intangible category. Um, and why is it a category on par with these physical needs like food and shelter? And furthermore, in a case where one has to prioritize, which one does one seek out first? So. tell you a story. There was a Holocaust survivor named uh, Hugo Green and he had a radio show on the BBC in England and sometimes he would tell stories about his uh, his own life. He had a, an unusual experience in the camps. He was actually in Auschwitz with his father. That was unusual because Generally speaking, um, they kept people who could labor, who could work as slaves, and fathers and children didn't. I don't want to be morbid, but for obvious reasons, we're not generally uh, in the same camp. But Hugo, uh, I think he was 12, and he, he may have lied about his age, or he was a little bit tall, but he was able to get in with the adults, with the men. And so he spent his time in Auschwitz with his father. They were together in the, in the, same, in the same barrack they, they slept. So anyways, he tells a story that it was one bitter, freezing cold night in, uh, in Auschwitz. And it was the middle of the winter, 
And they went out all day performing slave labor. And at the end of the night, they would come back and they would have a few hours to, to sleep on these slats that were called beds. And he came into the, the barrack. And Hugo says he was horrified to ascertain immediately as he entered the door, he could make out his father crouched in the corner, sort of hiding in the shadows, bent over, and he had a piece of scrap metal in his hands, and he had a flame, and he looked closer, he could tell what was it, there was the, the piece of metal, there was a like a wick that had been fashioned, a crude wick that had been fashioned from a torn uh, strip of his uniform. They didn't have sufficient clothing for the, for the winter. They, they had just those threadbare uniforms, but he tore a strip from that uniform and he twisted it into sort of a, a makeshift wick. And the, the, the oil, the fuel, which the wick was to burn, was a slice of butter, which his father had somehow procured. Butter in Auschwitz was worth more than, literally more than money. I mean, you can't eat money. Um, people were starving, and butter is fat. And those of us, thank God, who have never experienced starvation probably don't realize, but a lick of butter could keep a starving person alive for another day. So somehow his father had procured that, uh, that slice of butter. And uh, so Hugo saw this and he understood what was going on, that his father was gonna light this, this wick and burn this butter in this uh, piece of scrap metal. And he screamed out, stop! And I don't think I don't think any of us who haven't been in this situation can really relate to why he screamed out stuff. I certainly, uh, when I heard the story at first, didn't understand what, what his objections were. Maybe you thought that uh, he was afraid the guards would come in and catch them, which certainly could be deadly. Uh, it was the first night of Hanukkah. And Hugo realized that his father was lighting the Hanukkah menorah. And that was the scrap metal. It was a crude menorah. And the torn fabric from the uniform was the wick. And the slice of butter was the oil. And Hugo screamed out, stop. Now, also, you might think he, he, maybe he objected to the display of religion. Maybe that's what bothered him. No, no, that, that wasn't the problem. It was very simple. He could not bear to see this slice of butter go to waste, to go up in smoke when somebody could eat it and they could live for another day. And in a manner that I don't think any of us who live, thank God, who live in this uh, very affluent society where, where the worst problems we have is 
we have to buy groceries on a credit card and we don't know maybe how we'll pay the credit card bill or maybe we'll barely be able to pay a minimum payment but we're, we're, we, we don't know what starvation is. We don't know what it's like to go to bed against your will without food many, many days in a row. And it's a primal, it's a primal reaction. And that's what Hugo was experiencing, a very primal survival impulse. Stop! Stop! You don't do that in Auschwitz. You don't burn butter. You eat it. So he screamed out, stop! So he says, my father turned to me, and he spoke to me, and what he said to me, I will never forget as long as I live. He said to me, Hugo, if being in Auschwitz has taught us anything, it is that a man can live for many days without food, but he cannot live one minute without the light of hope. So, Maslow Frankel. Maslow would tell you that when you've got two cars in the garage and the kids have their college accounts, have their money for their tuition, and maybe even you have money set aside for all the kids' down payments on their first house, and you're living the American dream, that's why we came here, right? For the American dream. George Carlin said it's called the American dream because you've got to be sleeping to believe in it. <laughs> so, Maslow would say, when you've got your material ducks in a row, then we'll talk about nice things like Hanukkah candles and spirituality, but first things first. And, and Frankel, I think, would be on the side, I know, I know Frankel, he wrote, he wrote many books based on this thesis. Frankel would be on the side of Hugo Green's father, saying that yes, this is true, that you can actually live, it's not pleasant, but you can live many days without food. You cannot live one moment without the light of hope. So it's counterintuitive to a certain extent, meaning to say, I more easily understand Maslow than I understand Frankel, yet if you have thousands of years of Jewish history to look at, I think we have abundant proof that it wasn't material security that assured our survival. It was when we had light and wisdom and clarity and hope and spirituality and faith. And even in the absence of having our material needs met, we're able to survive and in many cases even thrive. It's interesting to me, just my own personal commentary, that Frankel's writing in Nazi Germany and at the very same time Maslow's writing in California. He's writing in America. And not just America, the West Coast. The ultimate. Manifest destiny. Like the ultimate in the American dream. And those are sort of two different schools of thought that, depending on what age you are, what generation you are, I, I would say our grandparents. For me, it's, it's my, my grandparents. You know, what was their thought? What, for as long as they could remember, as long as they could, 
everything they knew was the old world. It was the old world. It was another hemisphere. And whether your family came from Poland or from Morocco or from Lithuania or from Iraq, they didn't even have Iraq back then. <laughs> Baghdad was a real happening place. It was a Jewish community for a long time, many centuries. Or whether your family is from Yemen or your family is from uh, Hungary. We spent many, many, many centuries, millennia, in what we call the old world. And then all of a sudden, the demographics shifted. We had this flux of Jews to the Western Hemisphere, mostly to the United States of America. And, and, and what was the purpose? You know, why did the people who came, why did the Jews who came to America come here? Mostly they were afraid of getting killed. They were running from pogroms. They were running from persecution. They, they, they wanted freedom. They wanted protection un under the law. And that's why they came here. And the irony is that many people saw that as an opportunity to put material security ahead of spiritual connection. And I think the results are in. The results have been in for quite a few decades already, what the results were from that Jewish-American experiment that uh, we found out rather rapidly. It didn't take too long to find out what happens when we put our material security ahead of our spiritual connection. And uh, we, could have, we could have predicted it. And I don't judge. I don't judge those who came to America and said, I want my kids to be doctors and lawyers and to be able to get into country clubs. And if they can't get into the country clubs with their non-Jewish neighbors, then we'll build our own country clubs. I get it. I understand where that impulse comes from. But you look today, and it's not so many years. It's tops 100 years this experiment's going on. You see the results of it. So Sarah's tent, Rebecca's tent, the original Jewish homes, the original Jewish mothers, what were the key elements? What were the key ingredients, the mainstays of their home? Of course, you got to have a house, a cloud over the tent, which represents a physical place. And blessings in the dough. You got to have what to eat, of course. We need to feed our families. Very important. But also, uniquely, light. That intangible quality that gives meaning to the shelter and to the food. <laughs> Without the light, the shelter and the food lack meaning. I'm not talking about physical light. I'm not talking about photons. You know what the photon said to the desk clerk at the hotel? The desk clerk at the hotel asked the photon, do you have any luggage? He said, no, sir, I'm traveling light. Yeah. Photon said that. Okay. Um, I'm talking about spiritual light. Helen Keller said, what's worse than being blind, lacking vision? That's the kind of vision I'm talking about. The ability to see more than that which our physical senses can appreciate. The ability to appreciate purpose and meaning that we're here for a reason 
that we were sent by God to this world to accomplish something special and unique, and that our lives are important on an infinite scale. That's what light means. So yeah, light is up there with food and shelter. And in fact, if you look at which one is listed first, light. Frankel, not Maslow. The Jew from the old country, not the Jew from America. There was a, a group of Jewish communal leaders in uh, Austria who came to meet the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe. The sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rav Yosef Yitzchak, was uh, was traveling, and he came to a, a hotel, like a fancy hotel in Vienna. And I don't know if you've ever been to Vienna, but Vienna is uh, it's a very Stasi place. It's, uh, it's known, it's known for its architecture and art. So the hotels are, are, are like works of art. The hotels look like museums. He was staying in some hotel, <clears throat> and this group of uh, local Jewish leaders came to meet him. And so you have to understand a little bit about Chassidus, the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov lived in Poland, and uh, most of his influence was in Eastern Europe. And uh, I mentioned the sixth Rebbe of Chabad. So Chabad is, is from Belarus, from White Russia, um, which is also Eastern Europe. And this particular incident I'm describing occurred in Austria, which is in Central Europe, where the influence of Chassidus was not uh, so strong. So this story took place in the, in the interwar years, in the 1930s. At any rate, so uh, he, uh, he was met by this group of communal leaders, Jewish communal leaders, and they asked him a question. They said, what did Chassidus, meaning the teachings of the Hasidic masters from the, from the Baal Shem Tov Andam, what did Chassidus uh, innovate? What did it contribute that was new? that we didn't already have in Judaism. And you have to understand the complexity of that question because it's really, I don't know if it was a deliberate trap, but it's a question that you have to be extremely careful in answering. And I'll explain to you, before I tell you what the, what the sixth Rebbe of Chabad answered, I'll explain to you why that's such a dangerous question. When somebody asks, what did this thing innovate that's new to Judaism, you're sort of damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Because if you say, well, here's what it brought that's new, well, hold on a second, why are you bringing things that are new? Oh, we don't want innovations. We've had this experience, you know, a lot of people have tried to do their new and improved version of Judaism, and we don't really appreciate that. Just give us the Coke classic and don't mess with the formula, okay? Um, those who were around in the early 80s, I'm sure you appreciate that, understand what that mean, means. Um, so, that's if you say, well, here's what it contributed that's new. If you, on the other hand, if you say, well, see, this didn't add anything that's new. So then, 
the response is, oh, perfect, then I have no need for it because you're telling me it doesn't even do anything, it doesn't add anything new, then I have whatever I already have and that's enough. So you can understand that's a very difficult question to, to respond to. So the sixth Rebbe of Chabad says... Um, Above your head, there's an ornamental crown molding. It was a fancy hotel. And uh, I think he pointed the lamp, like he tilted the lamp so the light was shining on it. And he said, if you look, you'll see there's a carving of a flower, like a wooden carving of a flower. And they turned around, they looked at it, and the light was shining on it. And they, they saw the carved flower. And he said to them, did you see that earlier during our conversation? So they said, no, we hadn't taken any notice of it until now. He said, and that is what Siddhis contributes to Judaism. Just like that carving was there the entire time we were sitting here and long before we even entered this room. But you didn't notice it until light was cast upon it and it was pointed out to you. So too, see this is like a light that allows you to appreciate the depth and the meaning in fundamental Jewish belief and practice that you surely already have. So, we are in a time where, thank God, We've been blessed with abundant material bounty. We are more materially comfortable than any generation of Jews who have ever lived. If your great-grandparents saw how you lived, they would think that you are some type of royalty. Um, and that's not a problem. That's a wonderful thing. When Mashiach comes very, very soon, the delicacies, the Rambam says, Memandi says, Madonim, the delicacies are going to be matsuyim ka'afer, they're going to be as plentiful as dust. So, having all the luxuries abound, that is, that is uh, that's a good thing. It's a messianic thing. It's not a problem. Where we start to suffer, is when we believe our security is dependent on those things. And when we start to prioritize that our material needs have to somehow be considered before we take care of our spiritual needs, and that has always been, always been disastrous for, for the Jews. Wherever we've lived, whenever, it's always led to undesirable outcomes. So, but the response is not, uh, is not that you have to renounce material uh, things and you have to be uh, a Luddite and you have to, like, like Ted Kaczynski, remember Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber? He hated technology. That's why he went to live in the forest. You ever read his manifesto? You should read it. 
it's not as crazy as you would want it to be. He's got, he makes a few, I mean, he was crazy. I mean, he was crazy, but you'd want his, you'd want it to be more insane ramblings. It actually says a few coherent things there. Um, and he was part of the MK Ultra project, so CIA messed up his brain, but that, that's not a joke. That's, you could go check that out. And I'm sure the YouTube algorithm is bringing all of the people who are interested in MK Ultra to my channel now. And I don't have more to tell you about it. But we didn't do it. <laughs> 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 the anti-Semites. They'll figure out how to make the Jews involved in it anyways. <laughs> Ted Kaczynski was not Jewish, by the way. Um, we don't need to renounce the physical uh, progress, the material progress, industrialization, the, uh, the information revolution. We don't have to hide from these things. Last week we spoke about the importance of using these tools and flooding the information highways with positive messages, spiritual messages. So it's not that we need to go and live on a mountaintop and take an oath of poverty and renounce all physical comforts. That's not the solution. We live in a time of, of blessing, of bounty. We live in a time where people live longer, thank God, than they've ever lived. Uh, we're, we're healthier, we have more luxuries. We, people travel, and well, you know, just a generation ago, when, when people lived in different area codes, they rarely saw each other. We, we, we hop on a plane, we fly. We, thank God, these are good things. These are good things, and we, when, and we thank God, we're grateful for all these material blessings. But here's the thing, we have to remember something. None of those things give us security. None of those things are important to our lives. When we have them, we'll use them, we'll gladly use them and try to use them responsibly and in meaningful ways. But the, the one thing that makes it or breaks it, the one thing that we need to constantly prioritize is the light, the meaning, the spirituality, the faith, that's in our lives and in, in, in our homes because without that everything else is meaningless. You know why you're supposed to light Shabbos candles? So the simple meaning, it says, it says in Shulchan Aruch in the Code of Jewish Law, you're supposed to light Shabbos candles so that you don't trip on the furniture. That's what it says, you don't trip on the furniture. Yeah. Uh, and it says for the peace of the home so you don't trip on the furniture because if you don't light the candles before Shabbos you're going to bump into the furniture and then the husband and wife are going to start fighting so for shalom bias, for peace in the home you have to light the candles so you don't trip on your stuff but there's a deeper explanation first of all, today we have so many lights in the home what, you're really re relying on the few little flames by the dining room table to to keep you from tripping on the, the ottoman. We have lights on, we have lights blazing in every single room. So practically speaking, that's not what the Shabbos candles are doing for us anymore. It's not like they're protecting us from tripping on our stuff. But spiritually, they, they, still, fulfill, they still fulfill that function. Shalom doesn't just mean people getting along. Shalom really means um, the harmonization of, of seeming opposites. So one great perceived conflict or dilemma is the spiritual and the material. That's what we've been describing. Shalom means peace. It means to realize one God made both 
and that as long as you have spiritual light, meaning you have a guide, you have the Torah telling you why life is important and what we're here for, then you can incorporate all the material blessings God gives us and we can use them productively. So the light, the Shabbos candles, are, turn on the light, take a day where you step away from the material world, you step away from working, you step away from the rat race, you step away from being part of the world and you just sort of transcend it all. Turn on the light, the Shabbos light, that means the vision, the clarity, the spiritual perspective, and it'll give peace, it'll harmonize the seeming dilemma between material and spiritual, and therefore you won't trip on your stuff. You won't trip on your stuff. In other words, you won't be one of these poor little rich kids who is suffering because everything that you own is just destroying your life because it doesn't have meaning. It doesn't have meaning, so it's just consuming you. You're trying to consume it, and it's consuming you. But when you have the light on, when, when you have a spiritual reason for living, now you don't trip on your stuff. You look at the things that God has given you, and you perceive a use, a God-given purpose for all of these material things. Whatever He gave us. So, again, there's the light, there's the food, there's the shelter, the Jewish home needs all three of these things. But if you take away the light and you just have the food and the shelter, if you just have physicality, even though Maslow would say, well, that's what you need to begin with in order to survive, Frankel would say, and Hugo Green's father would say, and Jewish history would certainly corroborate, it's not going to work out well for you. You're going to end up tripping on that physical stuff. First get the light, figure out what life is about, what we're here for, then open yourself up for God's blessings for material bounty and you'll be able to use it, you'll be able to deal with it gracefully because with the lights on, you'll see the purpose for everything that God's given us. And uh, ultimately, obviously, this is most, this is most uh, characteristic of the, of the era of Mashiach, which should immediately, imminently be with us where godly knowledge will inundate the entire world the entire world will see the purpose and then at the same time it will not coincidentally it will coincide with an incredible time of material bounty because then we'll be able to use it all then we'll be able to appreciate it all but you, you start with the light then you do the the material stuff then it works out for us.